I do want to say thank you to those who did come out to help yesterday. Uh, of course, uh, without the volunteer help, without people who are willing to take time out of their day uh, to work on things that need to be done, uh, obviously nothing would get done around here. Uh, and so we want to just thank you to those who came to help with the upkeep of the church. With that, let's have a word of prayer together. Father, I pray that you would help our hearts and minds to be here where we are. I pray that you would help me to be uh, what I need to be today, to be a vessel for your use. I pray for strength. I pray, Father, for open ears. I pray for guidance by your spirit for all of us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we continue this morning with our series on bad ideas about Jesus. Now, I've already said every generation of Christians, every church or every church age, I guess you could say, has had to deal with bad ideas. Now, the truth is, or I would assume that the truth is, that a church like this one in a place like where we are is likely never to embrace any of these bad ideas. It's highly unlikely that we'll ever find any of them in our doctoral statement here at First Baptist Church. But what does happen, and happens more often than we would like to think, is that Christians can functionally believe these things. For example, somebody who walks around thinking that they're right with God because of how much of the Bible they know is functionally a Gnostic, a bad idea about Jesus. Somebody who disparages or puts down or thinks it's non-essential for Christians to gather with other Christians is functionally a modalist or oneness theology as we described it last week. So these kind of things are important. Now this morning I want to talk about something that is called Arianism. Arianism is about 1800 years old. It is a bad idea that is still very much alive today. Arianism is really a bad idea that won't go away. It just seems that there are seasons and times in church history where it suddenly makes its return, only to go away again. Arianism is really a great, or I say Arianism is really the foundation of most of what Christian cults believe about Jesus. Almost every Christian cult you would encounter, their beliefs about Jesus would be described as Arianism. Arianism describes really basically what a Muslim would believe about Jesus. Now, Arianism is the belief that Jesus was a God or some sort of elevated human being. But he is not the God. He is a God, or in some cases, just an elevated person. But he is not the God of the Old Testament. He is not equal. He's not of the same essence. He is not that God. Now, of course, as we talked about last week, we believe that Jesus is the eternal member of the triune Godhead. That Jesus has always been with God, always been part of the Godhead for all of eternity. So, of course, we are not Arianists. 
Now, to talk about this bad idea, we come to the Gospel of John. It's probably the most famous prologue in the Bible. Along with Philippians chapter 2 and Colossians chapter 1, this text is one of the major reasons why we believe what we believe about Jesus. This is John's Christmas story. This is how he tells us that the eternal God, the second member of the triune Godhead, comes and puts on flesh. This prologue is so important to the rest of the book because it really is John setting up everything he's going to say for the rest of this book. And to open his book, in this prologue, he gives us three facts about Jesus. These facts set the tone for the book, and they're immensely inconvenient for someone who is an Arianist. So my goal this morning is simply to give those facts to you and explain their importance to our lives. Number one. Number one, Jesus is undefeated against the darkness. Jesus is undefeated against the darkness. We're going to move around to the text, but we're going to start in verse 5. Now, John's going to use a lot of terms for, uh, or titles like word or light or life. And he's not going to tell us who he's talking about until we get all the way to verse 17. And he's saying, look, all of these titles that I've been using, the titles he's going to use in this prologue, are all about the person Jesus Christ. So in verse 5, when John says, and the light shines in the darkness, the light there is Jesus. Well, we know the next, this is the light shines in the darkness. Now, go down to verses 9 and 10. John tells you what he means by darkness. And essentially, the idea is darkness is unbelief. So he's telling us that Jesus, the light, came and faced the darkness. Now, John is referring to the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day because they did not believe. He is referring to those who would meet Jesus in this story, and they wouldn't believe. And it, can, it certainly includes those who continue to meet Jesus, hear about Jesus, or hear the gospel, and not believe. That is the light. That is the darkness. So when we get the rest of the verse, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness could not comprehend it. The idea of comprehending is could not control it, could not dominate it, could not overcome it. So the light overcomes the darkness. The darkness does not overcome the light. Now to understand the idea that John is playing down here, he's, he's really laying out every type of unbelief, and he's labeling all unbelief as darkness. Or if you want to think of it this way, he's kind of giving us a spoiler. Because unbelief or darkness is going to betray Jesus. Darkness, unbelief, is going to kill Jesus. But Jesus is going to go willingly. Jesus is going to rise from the dead. Unbelief is going to lose. The darkness will not be able to overcome. But this unbelief also includes the kind of unbelief that spoils unity between people. We see the infighting with the disciples. This unbelief is also something that is found in the heart of every person, the kind of unbelief that causes a father to cry out to Jesus for his son and say, Help my unbelief. 
So John wants us to read his gospel, and he wants to see the light encounter the darkness. He wants to see Jesus encounter unbelief and watch as the darkness loses again and again and again. Jesus Christ, John is laying in front of us, has energy and power that the darkness does not have. That the light can go where it wants. That the light is on the move. That the light grows and expands. And the light even creates more light as people believe and become lights of the world. Now today's bad idea, Arianism, comes from church politics. I'll tell you the story. There was a very influential church in Alexandria, Egypt. If you didn't know this, the central power, the most, uh, the, the, uh, the most Christians at one point in church history were all concentrated in northern Africa. Most of your Bibles have been translated from, uh, from scrolls found in North Africa. But there was a church in Alexandria, Egypt, very influential, very powerful, was pastored by a, a wonderful man. Everybody loved him. But he was going to retire. And there were two young men, Alexander and Arian, who were up for the job. So Arian, to kind of wedge his way in, began to teach this, and that's why it's called Arianism. And he got very popular. He would, if he was around today, would have gotten his own TV show. His teachings would have been sold in most bookstores. In fact, when the Nicene Council is called to address Arianism, those who were not Arianism were, in fact, the minority. But those pastors who stood with the gospel won the argument at the Council of Nicaea, and that's where we get the Nicene Creed. The gospel won. And there's always times in church history when darkness seems to be gaining ground. Look at 100 years ago. I was saying to somebody this week, 100 years ago, everybody was sure that science was going to replace religion, that it was going to free man from his superstitions. And now we find that science is almost overwhelmed by superstition. We find that 500 years ago, it was certain that the most powerful church in the world, Rome, was simply going to squish the reformers. 1,500 years ago, the Moors were going to invade Europe and they were going to destroy the, the base camp of Christianity. And for hundreds of years, places like China and places like Iran and places like Pakistan have done everything they could to try to keep the gospel out of their land and they have failed in so many ways spectacularly. Again and again, the darkness lost. But if we're honest, our personal dark times are the moments when we are vulnerable to believing these things. In the times of emotional difficulty, whether we're anxious or we're depressed, we don't think the light's going to win. And we look for other saviors. In financial times, or financially difficult times, we fear God's not going to provide like we want him to. How many times in your life has the risk of saying or living what you believe, the risk caused you to pull back? 
John is clear. Jesus is undefeated against the darkness. And that's a fact that the Christian must live out. In our time, as we see darkness, as we believe we see darkness, we must stake our lives on the fact that darkness does not overcome light. That Jesus is undefeated against the darkness. Number two, the second fact that John wants us to know is this, that Jesus is the eternal ruler of created things. Look with me at verse 3 of our text. We get three definitive statements. He says, all things were made by him. That would be Jesus. Next we get, without him, not anything was made. Then verse 4, in him, again, Jesus, was life. So the idea is John's taking us all the way back to the Genesis and to the creation account where we get recorded for us the creation of the sun, the moon, the land, the animals, bugs, people, so on. And John is saying, literally, these things were made by Jesus. Now, I want to be clear here. John is not assigning different roles of creation to different members of the Godhead. What John is doing is saying that Jesus was equally a part of the creation account. If we go back to Genesis, we actually see that the whole creation account opens with the Spirit hovering over the water. And so we see that all three members of the Trinity equally involved in the creation story. But then we get the next phrase. Without him was not made that anything that was made that was made. He's basically just affirming what he just said. But why say it? As I mentioned several weeks ago, Greek philosophy was the dominant worldview at the time. Now, the word logos, which is what is translated here, the word, the word logos was a philosophical term. It was kind of the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the lost treasure of Greek philosophy. Greek philosophers for centuries were trying to find that one idea that explained all of existence. And so John is saying, here it is. He's saying this, this, is, this Jesus, this word, this logos is the explanation of how things exist. He is the explanation of why they exist. He is the explanation of how they exist together. What John is doing is being very clear that the explanation for their existence, for our existence, for all of existence actually came from outside existence itself. That Jesus is the what, how, and why of creation. But then we get to verse 4 and we get this phrase, in him is life. The simple idea is this. People are a problem. You ever heard that term, you know, I would enjoy shopping at Walmart if it wasn't for the people? People are terrible. People do terrible things. People are terrible to each other. People have terrible things happen to them. We're broken. They're broken. The world is broken. Everything is broken. And in Scripture, the idea, or with John, the idea of brokenness is death. And so he's saying Jesus is the anti-brokenness. He is life. Again, a life that comes from outside of ourselves. Now, the intention of all of this fancy language is to set the tone of the confrontation in the book. 
the confrontation between what was created and what was not created. The Arianist believes that the universal conflict has God on one side and Jesus and us on the other. And the Arianist believes that Jesus does not provide salvation, but in fact is the example so we can save ourselves. The Arianist says, you know what? Instead of his, perfect, his, his perfection becoming our perfection, as we believe, the Arianist says, no, his perfection is the perfection we must obtain. I actually have a very personal story about this. So years ago, of course, right out of high school, I was working in fast food. One of the people I worked with was a, was a teenage African-American girl named Angela. She grew up Jehovah's Witness. She was tall, she was athletic, she was smart, she was funny, she was kind, and pretty much every boy who came into the store was eyeballing her. Well, we got to talking, and I began to share my very young faith at the time, and she told me she had gotten kicked out of her church. She had gotten caught sleeping with, another boy, with a boy who attended the same church. She was kicked out, he was not. And the wild thing to me at the moment when I, when I was listening to her was that she told me she was okay with it. And here was her reasoning. She said, I broke the rules. I can't be good like them. And so it makes sense they would kick me out. So this amazing young lady had no hope that she would ever work anywhere better than fast food. She would do nothing better than jumping from boyfriend to boyfriend because she believed she could not be perfect like her church demanded. You see, I'm telling you, these bad ideas have real-world consequences. Now, it's interesting to me that this bad idea, Arianism, comes from playing politics in Philippians 2. The Bible tells us that the playing of politics is a sin in the church. Why? Because politics is always a game of performance and exclusion, which is the antithesis of the gospel, where Jesus does all the performing, and his message is to be shared with everyone. As I told you a couple of weeks ago, the moment Jesus is anything less than what he's presented in the scripture, the grace is taken away and is replaced by law and works. Every legalist is a functioning Aaronist. All of us were created by, through, and for Jesus Christ, which means he has a claim on my life, your life, the life of any believer, any unbeliever. He is not some local, tribal, traditional God. He is the eternal ruler of all created things in his life, his life, his death, his resurrection accomplishes saving us in the full because he is the eternal king of all created things. But then we come to number three. The third thing, the third fact that John wants us to know is this, that Jesus is full of glory and majesty. He is full of glory and majesty. We come now to verse one. In the beginning was the word. The simple idea here is saying that when human time began, the word was already there. It goes further, though, and tells us the word was with God. Now, this is, a, again, John clarifying something. If you go over the book of Acts, you might remember the Apostle Paul goes to Athens. And he finds all of these numerous shrines and statues of different gods. So what John is saying to the non-Jewish people of his time who were the collector of gods, the word 
that he is presenting, the Logos, the person he is about to tell them about, was with God. He's saying that they were together. He is not introducing anybody new. Jesus did not belong on another God shelf. It's not the idea that Jesus was just in the presence of God, but the idea of interaction, of being of the same team. Then we get the third theological statement, the word, was God. Now this is not the only statement we have in all of the scriptures that Jesus was divine and equal with God and the Holy Spirit, but this is a big one. Let me explain why. If Jesus, or if John, if John wanted to say that Jesus was someone who possessed some attributes of the divine nature, there was a word he could have used for that. First Peter will use that word, but not about Jesus. If John simply wanted to tell us that Jesus was some sort of secondary God or some sort of lesser God than the God of the Old Testament, he had grammatical ways that he could do that or express that. We find that in other places in Scripture. What John is doing here is using grammar and language so that he can leave no doubt that his intention is to communicate that Jesus was the true and full, had true and full deity, equal with God, and he was always equal with the God the Jews had always worshipped. But to fully understand what he's trying to do here, expand our text a little bit. So this opening section will lead to a short narrative about John the baptizer. John will then witness that everything John, the gospel writer, everything the gospel writer is saying is true. If we go a little bit further, we find the religious leaders, they're investigating Jesus. And they're finding that the information is more than they can comprehend. Then you go a little bit further and you begin to see a series of texts about miracles and interactions that are all meant to pull us back to this text to be evidence of the glory and majesty that John is assigning here in first one. That Jesus is appropriately, it is absolutely appropriate, I should say, to give him the glory and majesty that is equal with God the Father. Bad ideas about Jesus like Arianism always take Jesus' glory and majesty and they tame him. They make it possible to take Jesus and just put him as another God in your God collection. But this creates a problem. The Bible says that our hearts are a factory of idol. That it's like an instinct. We, if we can find something to worship other than God, we'll do that. Almost to the point we, we don't have any control over it. That's a problem. Well, then the Bible comes along and tells us, you know, if you want to be free from that, the way you're free from that is by going to, the, going to the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ. To love him more than you love money, to love him more than you love food. If you want to be liberated from your idols, you have to be able to see the glory and majesty of Christ and love him more. If you want to be free from your, your slavery to greed or money, you must see the glory and majesty of Jesus. If you want to be free from your desire to look good in front of your friends or to have significance and people don't seem to be cooperating, if you want to be free from that pride, then you are to go to the majesty and glory of Jesus Christ. Well, if he is just a lesser God, what reason do you have to choose him over sex and money and food and power and influence and so forth. But perhaps the more important question here is what, does your, you know, what reason does your neighbor have 
if you're functionally in your home, somebody who robs Jesus of the glory and majesty that he has, what reason do your children have to believe him, to choose him? What reason do your coworkers have to choose him over their idols? There's another problem. If Jesus is not as glorious and majestic as John tells us here, we have nothing to offer to the post-Christian world that we right now live in. Right now in our society, right now our whole culture functions this way. If people say it's important, if enough people say it's important, or people with power say it's important, it's important. Or if enough people, uh, enough people, or enough people of power say this is this is glorious or this is good, then it becomes good, and it's chasing this and that. But we come with a Jesus who has a glory and majesty that is completely independent of what anyone thinks of Him. We have a Jesus that has glory and majesty that is completely independent of how useful we might think he is from week to week. His glory and majesty is completely independent of the good or bad that anyone who claims his name has ever done. His glory and majesty is completely independent of whether or not church attendance in America is down or if it's up. His glory and majesty is completely independent of whether or not the, ch- the church in Iran is growing at as incredible pace as it is. Here in this part of the Bible, you're being introduced to a magnificent Savior with infinite glory and majesty. And we're saying, look, this is what we have. It's completely independent, uh, independent of the winds of culture, of the society, where one thing is fun or one thing's important today and not tomorrow. Where things that were valued today are not valued tomorrow. We say, no, we have a Jesus that is independent of all that. He is magnificent and glorious. But if we have a lesser Jesus, what do we have for a society like that? So the Jesus of Arians is small and ignorable. The Jesus we have in the text is bigger and greater than we can put our minds around. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, is Lord over the darkness. He is eternally undefeated against the darkness. Jesus Christ is the eternal ruler over all created things. That includes both those who do and those who do not believe in him. They belong to him. The word, the life, the life. Jesus Christ is this glory, has this glory, this infinite glory, this infinite majesty. So here's what I would say to you. Don't ever let someone say that Jesus is just good enough for you and what they have is just good enough for them. As if there is something as equally glorious and majestic out there that is more or as equally glorious and majestic as Jesus Christ. You and I know that's a lie. There's no one more glorious, no one more magnificent. So we walk away this morning with these facts. We walk away being reminded that as Christians we have a magnificent, undefeated, glorious king. We will not tolerate him being lowered in any way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opening prologue in the book of the Gospel of John I thank you for its truth, its deep truth, its wide truth, its 
It's glorious truth. And Father, we thank you that you were so clear about who your son is and who it is that has saved us and who it is that we are being molded into the image of. Thank you, Father, for these things. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.